Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Advent is a Latin word that means coming. It's a four-week season that calls us to prepare to celebrate the coming of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah tells us to clear the way so that we can welcome and receive God's promised Savior, Christ the Lord. In Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, the prophet writes, A voice cries out, Prepare in the wilderness a road for the Lord. Clear the way in the desert for our God. Fill every valley. Level every mountain. The hills will become a plain, and the rough country will be made smooth. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it. The Lord himself has promised this. As we light the first Advent candle, let us remember to trust in the Lord's promises. The first Sunday in Advent is the Sunday of Hope. We light the prophecy candle in order to open the period of waiting for the birth of Christ. The candle reminds us of the light of hope spoken by the prophets and foretold of a Messiah who would bring peace and love to our world. So how many of you enjoy Facebook? Yeah, you get home at night and you sort through all of those messages. And uh, I I like it. I I, I have to say I don't spend a whole lot of time on Facebook. But sometimes when I get home at night, I I love to to look through the postings that uh, my friends have have put up during the day. And uh, I guess what I like about it, and this is probably wrong of me, but... What I like about it is it enables me to stay superficially in touch with all of the different seasons or stations of life that I've gone through over the past, you know, 20-some years, 30-some years, 40-some years. Uh, And uh, the thing that I like about it is uh, people find the funniest videos and they post the funniest things about themselves. And and some of the things that have happened to them in, in recent days. And I just, I, I love to, to just look at those. And recently, you know, as we enter into this Advent season, uh, I, was, I was looking at one from the other day, and it was from a friend of mine, uh, a Christian guy who has three young children, and I haven't heard from him in a while, and so I saw his posting, and I looked at it, and it said, just set up the Fisher-Price nativity scene under the tree and told the Christmas story to my kids. At the end of the story, I asked if they understood and if they could recite the story back to me. I was awaiting that great parenting moment when my youngest looked at me and it looked confused and said, Wait a minute, where's the big bad wolf? <laughs> There's a lot of confusion around the Christmas story. There's a lot of confusion around Christmas, and it's not just with children. Uh, It's with adults as well. I I saw a cartoon recently that that resonates with a lot of Americans today, and it showed two homes next door to one another. Both were decorated for Christmas. One had lights all over it. There was a 30-foot plastic snowman in the front yard. There was a Santa Claus and a, and a sleigh and reindeer on the roof. And in front of the house, in front of the snowman, was a huge neon sign that was flashing that said, 
Merry Xmas. Now, right next door to that house was a, a, a house that was also decorated for Christmas, only this one had a small nativity scene in the front yard. That was the only decoration that they had. They had a, a small spotlight focusing in on the baby Jesus, and, and that was it. And the couple from the first house was looking out their window down at this manger scene, and they said, some people have to put religion into everything. Now, I think that uh, what this speaks to is a shift in our culture. Uh, What was once a holy day is quickly becoming a holiday, right? Um, I wonder if the hustle and the bustle and all the commercialism surrounding Christmas is causing us to lose sight or lose the meaning of the season, the true meaning. This past week, I I walked into a very busy big box department store, and it was clear that they were gearing up for Black Friday. There were signs all over that talked about the Black Friday sales. And just in front of the doors, as you walked in, there was a, a, a giant holiday display. And it also had a manger scene, but it had Christmas trees and a giant menorah, and it had a Santa surrounded with reindeer and, and snowmen. And there was a loudspeaker set up uh, with speakers above this station, and it was piping out music to the tune of Holly Jolly Christmas. And the, the word that they were using was Chrisma Hana Kwanzadan. Okay? To the tune of Holly Jolly Christmas. Now, as I was walking by, you know, I kind of stopped and I thought about it for a minute. And I thought, okay, they're, they're trying to be inclusive and, you know, they're trying not to offend anyone, so they're trying to... But I have to say, it made me feel offended in some way. Uh, From a Christian perspective, it made me feel that the sacred holy day of Christmas has been transformed into something so much less than what it ought to be. And it just, it didn't settle with me very well. I mean, doesn't it seem as though businesses and institutions are going out of their way these days to be more inclusive and to avoid the possibility of offending anyone? And I understand the sentiment behind it, but what do we lose in the process? What do we lose? Uh, Starbucks, for instance, you probably heard on the news, uh, received a lot of flack for removing all of the symbolism from their holiday cups. Maybe you've seen their their new cups. I brought one here. It's just all red. with just the little Starbucks lady on there. And uh, no symbolism whatsoever. This is the first time they've done that. And a lot of people were upset about it. Because they felt like it was losing something. It took away from the spirit of of Christmas. Now, I I don't really have a a problem with the cup itself. I think the red looks nice. But... But it does highlight the fact that Christmas has been transformed 
or is in the process of being transformed from a holy day to a holiday, doesn't it? And there's a big difference between the two of those things, a holy day and a holiday. Christmas has become the season where we go to parties, where Christ's name is intentionally omitted from the program to avoid offending anyone. It makes me sad that there are people that can go all through this season and never make the connection between Christ and Christmas. A friend of mine was recently uh, ministering to a person that was going through a crisis. In fact, this person that he was ministering to had gone through crisis after crisis in his life. His whole life seemed like a wreck. And all through those challenging situations that this man had gone through, he never once considered the possibility of looking to Christ as a a possible solution to some of the challenges that he had been facing. It just never occurred to him. So my friend thought, well, maybe if I gave him a Bible, he might be able to find some hope and some life-giving promises within. But he knew that this man had never read a Bible before. So he wrapped up the Bible and he gave it to him and he said, I'd like to give you this Bible. I think it would really encourage you. And since we're entering into this season of Advent and and Christmas, uh, I would encourage you to read the Christmas story. And the guy looked at him with a a, a shocked look on his face and said, you mean the Christmas story is in the Bible? (laughs) He just never made the connection. And I I think a lot of people are like that. There's a a growing ignorance of spiritual things in our world. Um, There's a darkness that has infiltrated our land. And it has resulted in an increased separation from any contact with or reference to God. There's a stigma out there that says, don't bring God into anything. Just keep it to yourself. But where does that come from? I mean the root of it. I mean, I understand the desire not to be offensive. But where does the, resu- re- the root of that rejection of Christ come from. In Romans 1, uh, Paul addresses this when he says, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, the way the world thinks, and sometimes the way that you and I think as well, if we're honest, has become futile. And if you think about it, it really ought to be no surprise to us that it does. You see, we are in a spiritual battle, all of us, whether we realize it or not. There is a spiritual battle waging all around us. Sometimes when I sit down in these pews and I'm worshiping, and I look up into the the rafters and up into the dome and up into the balcony, I, I, I imagine angels kind of just resting in the rafters and in the corners, just entering into our worship experience. I can't see them with my physical eyes, but sometimes I just sense that there's a presence here that is supernatural. And at other times, I sense a a supernatural presence that is not so good, not necessarily in this building, but as I go about my business. 
when I go through my day, when I have interactions with various people. And we have to remember that the enemy's one desire is to separate us from God. Whatever that looks like, however he can get there. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Sometimes, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but have you ever been in a, an argument with someone, maybe a, a fellow believer, someone that, that you really trusted, someone that you cared deeply about? They said something to you that rubbed you the wrong way, and you walked away from that argument or comment, and you started stewing about it, thinking about what they said, and it, and it just got you more and more angry. You started thinking terrible thoughts about that person. And then you started putting together in your mind the words that you would say the next time that you saw them so you could crush them, right? Have you been there? I think we've all been there. Uh, I remember being in a situation like that not so long ago. And I remember compiling my words and feeling the anger in my heart as I was putting those words together. And then, just before I had that conversation with this person, I got a check in my spirit, and I think it was the Holy Spirit, reminding me that our battle is not against flesh and blood, that this is a spiritual battle that's taking place, and that my enemy is not this person, but it's some spiritual force or entity utilizing this scenario, this situation, to divide and conquer. And right away, when I, when I recognized the, the lie that I was about to enter into, instead of unloading on this person, I, I told them that I believe that this issue that we're struggling with has very little to do with you and me. I think there is a spiritual battle that's taking place that's much bigger than both of us. And before we talk about this anymore, I'd just like to take a moment to pray. And do you know that after we prayed together, it was as if we couldn't even remember what the issue we were fighting about was. Now, what is that? That is entering into a spiritual warfare. Okay? And the enemy is constantly working on us, constantly working on us. But he doesn't want us to know that he's working on us. He doesn't want us to identify that. See, the enemy is a defeated foe. And he knows that he does not have the power to destroy us. That's been taken from him. But what he does have is the power to distract and to tempt and to plant thoughts in our minds, to create dissension, to divide, to conquer. How many of you have read the, the book, The Screwtape Letters? The Screwtape Letters is a, a book written by C.S. Lewis, and he was trying to, to kind of paint a picture of this battle that we're all facing. 
And the way he did it was he, he put together a series of letters from a senior demon by the name of Screwtape. And Screwtape was mentoring his nephew, Wormwood. He was a junior tempter. That's what Wormwood is called. Now, the uncle's mentorship pertains to the nephew's responsibility for securing the damnation of a British man known as the patient. So every time Screwtape talks about the patient, he's trying to teach Wormwood how to bring the patient down. And at one point he says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Now what is he trying to teach Wormwood? He's trying to teach him that if he can remain invisible, if he can convince the patient that he doesn't exist and that this isn't a spiritual battle but a physical battle, the battle is halfway won. Now, it's often said that we are either moving toward God or we're moving away from him. But if we have too great a sense of moving away from him, We might stop, repent, take an assessment of where we are, and then begin to move toward God. And that's the last thing the enemy would want us to do. Satan wants us in the dark. He wants us to be moving away, but not realizing that we're actually moving away. He wants us to be falling deeper while not recognizing that we're falling at all. The devil is never going to show up with a red cape and horns and a pitchfork. He's never going to do that. Well, first, because that's not actually what he looks like. But secondly, because if he did show up and made himself visible in that way, we would say, oh, you're the devil, I am not going to listen to you. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do because you're the devil, right? So the devil never shows up in that way. He shows up in our thought life. Sometimes we think it's our own thoughts. He usually shows up when we're feeling weak or vulnerable or discouraged or depressed. And he just starts planting seeds. Are you going to take that? That person hates you. What are you going to do about it? You're going to turn to God. Obviously, he hasn't helped you in the past. Why don't you take responsibility for your own life? You ever had thoughts like that? I know I've had thoughts like that. And you know what? They're lies. And that's what the enemy is constantly doing. He's just constantly planting lies. He's he's called the deceiver in scriptures. See, one of the greatest tricks 
that the devil has is to convince you that he doesn't exist. And so instead, he just tries to co-opt your life by getting you busy. Busy with, with things that have no eternal value. If he can get you focused on sometimes good things that have no eternal value and keep you focused on those things, he knows you're going to miss the best things. Busyness is a great tool of the enemy. Now, the focus of Christmas was intended to be the incarnation. Christ coming into the world and all of that means for you and me, the liberation that comes with that, the freedom from sin and the chains of sin and death. But all of that gets so easily lost in all of the things that are synonymous with this season that we're entering into right now. Now, what I'd like you for you to do just for a moment is to take Screwtape's advice and think about it for a moment in light of some of the following things that might distract us during this season. How would the enemy use these things to separate us from the most important thing? Black Friday sales. Fighting to get the latest toy. Camping outside the Walmart all night, knowing that you might get trampled at 6 (laughs) a.m. Listening to dogs barking to the tune of jingle bells. Singing songs such as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Here Comes Santa Claus. Stressing over how to buy all those gifts that you know you have to buy and still pay rent in January. Getting all those decorations up. Preparing for the in-laws. And of course, getting all the things that we want. How many of you have heard the most recent ad that Verizon just put out? You heard the Verizon ad? They've tapped into this sentiment, and they're now running ads that say, Tis the season for getting. Tis the season for getting. And everything in the ad is all about getting what you want during this holiday season. Now, of course, all of these things on this list are not bad in and of themselves. Many of them are wonderful. And I, I, I love participating in many of them. Uh, but what we have to be intentional about is protecting and celebrating and proclaiming the true meaning of Christmas. And the true meaning of Christmas can get lost in the midst of all this hustle and bustle. How do we welcome Jesus into our lives in this season. It might look different for each of you. At the time of the first Christmas, Jesus was unwelcome. He wasn't welcomed by the rulers of the day or the religious leaders of the world. And even his own people, the people that he had come to save, did not recognize him and ultimately called for his crucifixion. 
How much has changed since that first Christmas? Jesus is as unwelcome in many of the inns in America today as he was in that inn in Bethlehem. People still reject him and ignore his presence. Sometimes I wonder why the world is so afraid of Jesus. Why the response? I mean, we don't see this kind of reaction to the story of any other life or religious leaders. The only answer that makes sense to me as I, as I ponder these things is that it must be true. It must be true. And if it's true, it demands a response from us. Jesus isn't just one religious leader among many. He's the only son of God. He's Emmanuel, God who came to us in human form. Now, if this is true, we can no longer be Lord of our own lives. It means that God has claim on our lives, and either we embrace that and submit our lives to him, or we fall in line with so many others and we reject him. If it's true, we can't live for ourselves anymore. We're subject to a higher authority. In John 1, 10 and 11, it says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, in spite of all of the attempts to ignore Jesus over the years, and there have been many, he remains the ruler of heaven and earth. He has more followers than any king who ever lived. He's overcome the world And one day he will return to judge it. How much has been lost since that first Christmas day? The simplicity and the sacredness and the wonder of it all, the realization and the significance of God's most precious gift, becoming man so that we could be with him for all of eternity. Some of us are willing to put up with the baby Jesus. The baby Jesus. But we don't want him to grow up. We like the baby, but we don't care too much for all the titles that come with him when he grows up. The Christ, Emmanuel, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Because again... These titles require a response from us. If we can keep him in the manger, he's controllable, containable. But if he grows up to be king of kings and lord of lords, he's not containable and he certainly isn't controllable. But the thing is, Jesus was not meant for the manger. He was meant for the throne The fact that Jesus is seated on the throne should give all of us hope. 
It's what gives our lives meaning. You see, after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to the Father, having passed through the heavens, he entered into the heavenly temple of God, and there he received the official proclamation of his victory on the cross, breaking the chains of sin and death. God's throne is a place of power and authority, majesty and honor. It's a place of justice and sovereignty, holiness, not to mention purity, eternal life, and grace. The vision of Jesus being seated on the throne is also a picture of rest. And I love this because there are lots of depictions of the temple in the Old Testament that describe what it's like on the inside. And did you know that the priests in the temple never sat down? They never sat down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle or in the temple because God's work is never done. But Jesus is seated because his work is finished. But here's the thing. Jesus is coming back again. We see this promised all throughout the scriptures. He's coming back again. And in Revelations 19, 6, it says, Then I heard the sound like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunders, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. The first time Jesus came, he came in obscurity. He came in vulnerability and humility. And he's coming again in power and strength and glory. Now, Jesus always comes in a way that we don't expect. He's unpredictable in his ways. Right when you think you have Jesus figured out, He does something that makes you say, what? And it's sometimes you can't even put it together until everything has transpired. And then you look back and you say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Frederick Buechner puts it this way. He says, those who believe in God can never in any way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go, to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. For those who believe God, it means, as evidenced in his birth, that God himself is never safe from us. And maybe... That's the dark side of Christmas. The terror of the silence. He comes in such a way that we can always turn down. As we could crack the baby's skull like an eggshell. Or nail him up when he gets too big for that. Jesus defines the story of our lives. In John 17.3, it says, Now this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The whole point of Christmas is God becoming human in the person of Jesus. Why did he do that? He did that because he loves you. He loves us. He loves you more than you could imagine. Imagine willingly coming into this world, leaving the, the heavens where you are adored and worshipped by all the heavenly beings, where everything is perfect, and entering into a world as a baby in a dark and cold stable, growing up in poverty, knowing that the, the very people that you came to save would ultimately reject you and crucify you in the most heinous death known to man at that time. As a father or a mother, if you are a father or a mother, can you imagine giving up your only child to a group of people that you knew ahead of time would treat your beloved child the way they did? Our celebration of Christmas should stem from our deep sense of gratitude for all that God has done for us. I had a wise friend that I was talking with one time, and they were saying that, you know, James, I'm going through a really hard time right now. Going through a really hard time. But I will choose to worship. In fact, if God never does another thing for me for the rest of my life, I still have reason to worship. We have reason to live and celebrate because the Christmas story is true. All we need to do is look into the manger. It's all there. Nothing is missing. There are no false promises. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. And in Galatians 4.4 it says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. The good news is that God's heart is open to all of us. In spite of all that we did to reject him and turn our backs on him, all the brokenness in our lives, the sin in our lives, the things that we have done that we regret, that we're shameful about, God knows all of that, and he continues to open the door to you because he loves you and he wants nothing more than to be in relationship with you. Deep, abiding, loving relationship. He cared enough about you to send his only son so that you could be reconciled to him. What other gifts do we need in this season? What else does God need to say to us? He said it all in Christ. He is the light of the world. In Isaiah 9, 2, it says, The people walking in darkness, and that's you and me, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
as we enter into this season of Advent, let's proclaim in our homes, let's proclaim in our places of work, let's proclaim among our friends and our families the truth of Christmas. The truth of Christmas is not a sentimental metaphor that illustrates to us that we have or we ought to pray harder for world peace or that we might become more tolerant. It's a claim. It's a truth claim. It's a claim that Jesus has done something staggering. He's done something that has happened that should blow our minds. He has come to earth so that people walking in darkness, people like you and me, would be able to see a great light so that upon those living in the the land of deep darkness, that light would dawn. He's opening our eyes to the possibility of being in relationship with the creator of the universe for all eternity. This is good news. And that's the true meaning of this season. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for this holy day. Lord, we pray that you would give us insights into what it would look like for us to celebrate this in a way that gave you reverence, honor. Lord, help us to be a witness in all the places that we find ourselves in. Give us divine appointments wherever we should go. Help us to remain cognizant of what you've done for us, Lord. We are eternally grateful, and for eternity we will worship with you because of this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.